Well, I think we've heard stories of it already, but the question we're going to start this morning with is this. Have you ever had a time in your life where you've disagreed with God on how best he's going to receive glory, how best he's going to get his reputation out, how best he's going to run the plan? And I think you've heard two stories already. Um, of sometimes it's easy to hear these things and trust God's plan. Other times it's not so convenient. Um, and these can be as large as the stories you've heard this morning. They can be as small as to the middle schoolers in the room. If you remember, uh, for those of us who are way past those years, you can remember. Um, uh, I remember asking the question, not like that, because I wasn't smart enough to ask it like this. But I remember asking, God, are you really going to get glory out of my reputation being what it is in middle school? Which was not much. Um, I can remember my first job. Um, I can remember it in my choices at 19 that weren't the smartest things in the world. My first car accident, my first big correction by my boss. We've all had these moments where we disagree maybe with how the circumstances in our life are going. And we can ask God, is this really how you're going to get this job done? Um, Those can be in the small things like I've mentioned. They can be in big things as well. Loss of a job, um, loss of a friend, a chronic illness. Um, These are all moments in life where we have to ask the question, God, do you really know what you're doing? here or not. Um, To take it to the next level, when you add names to it, uh, it gets a little more um, intense in the fact that you can ask, you know, did you really need to get glory out of taking so-and-so? So So I have some names. um, Austin Jack would be one that I really struggle with. Uh, Did you really need to take him? Um, My grandmother, uh, who I was really close to, there's a lot of confusion and questions about her death of like why and how and... um, there are others, um, Sue Bassone, Steve Marshall, Addie Ray, add to the list your names of those that we feel like, man, God, if you would have just, if you could have just, why didn't you, we've all been there. If you haven't been there, you will be there. And it's the question that we're going to ask this morning of what do you do when you disagree with God's plan to receive glory? What do you do with that? How do you handle it? Because I think we'll all at some point have to come to a point where we disagree with how God's going to work this for his good. This is all found in John chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be in John chapter 11 for the morning. There are a bunch of different avenues I could have gone with John chapter 11. It's a big chapter. There's a ton of theology. There's a ton of application in it. But this morning, I just want to send around this one question. What do you do when you disagree with how God gets glory? How do you, do, how do you deal with that? Because you're going to see a family that has to deal with that. There are these three uh, people, the main characters, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Lazarus becomes very ill, if you haven't heard the story before. If you're new to church or you're new to the story, he gets very ill. And and they're left with this question of, is he going to make it? Is he not going to make it? And we're going to find out through this story that he does indeed pull through, that that he does indeed um, become alive, having to go through some pretty intense things, obviously. But this morning, it doesn't ever negate the question. What do you do when you disagree with God's plan to receive glory? John chapter 11, if you have your Bibles, let's just jump right into the text this morning. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and who wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so the sisters said to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, 
This illness will not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, let's just kind of do some context work here real quick. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, very close friends. There's a lot of different Marys in the New Testament. Um, it would be the equivalent of me going down to the elementary wing and just yelling the name Hannah and just seeing how many Hannahs roll out, right? Or you go into an elementary school and you yell the name Emma and then you're like, what in the world? Okay, so it's, it's a common name. There's a lot of Marys in the Bible and, and I've done some research. This Mary uh, is one of probably close to, if I've done the math, around six different Marys in the New Testament. There's Mary. Um, that is Jesus' mom. This is not her. There's Mary, Jesus' aunt, not her. This is Mary who hosted a church plant in her home in Acts, not her. This is Mary who in Romans 16 may or may not have been a deacon, deaconess, a whole theology in that, um, not her. Um, Mary Magdalene could have been her who was at the tomb with Jesus, or there's this Mary, or there's the Mary, this Mary is Mary Magdalene, and the two are the same person and yet they're different, and so what do you do with that, right? So we're just going to say this is Mary, and she was really, really close to Jesus, and she was the one who we know in John 11 anointed him with oil. She loved him enough to anoint his, his head with oil and wiped his feet with her hair. We know that she was the one who praised for sitting at Jesus' feet when her sister was busy trying to clean the house and prep to host Jesus and his boys. This is that Mary. She loved him. There was a, there was a deep connection here. He loved the family. He loved her as well. In a small town, called Bethany, much like North Lawrence would be here. It's kind of a no-name, small little town, but Jesus loved small, no-name little towns. Let me just put it that way. Jesus just just loved to hang out in small towns. So if you're from here and you're around here, live it, love it. It's awesome to be part of where we are here. If you're not and you're visiting with us, you should move in this way. It's great. Um, Not that there's any houses for you, but you really should try. It's fantastic. Um, when, when we know that Jesus is very close to his family, and this is only one of the names that we, he, he, this is one of the few names of, if only the only name that we hear the words, he whom you love is ill. Okay. So Lazarus is very sick. He's on his deathbed. This is, this is hospice. This is ICU. This is giving hours to live, not days to live, but hours to live. And they are sending a messenger to Jesus and they say, Jesus, go tell Jesus his friend is sick. So the servants come and they tell Jesus, Mary and Martha told us to tell you that Lazarus is very sick. He's not going to make it. And they stay by Lazarus' side because they don't know when he's going to pass. And Jesus tells them this, he's going to be fine. He's going to pull through. No big worries here. This is for the glory of God that this is happening, and this is going to be okay. John 11, verse 4. When Jesus heard this, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. That's an interesting phrase. Let me just kind of unpack this just for a second for those who may be new to church world. What does it mean that the glory of God, what is that statement? What does that mean that he says, this is for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be, again, glorified through it? Let me just unpack this just for a second because it's important to the the question that we're asking at the very beginning, and it's important to their theology to get this thing right, to know the God that you serve. It is an impossible, maybe, term to define because in the Bible it's used so many different ways. But let me just kind of put it into a smaller nutshell and say basically it's kind of, it's his reputation. It's God's reputation. It's his presence. It's the being known. It is his praise. And it can be translated as weight or heaviness. It's that feeling you've had in the middle of the night 
where you feel like something's in the room. You ever, and I'm not saying that's God. I'm just saying, have you been there before where you feel like there's something in the room and you're not really sure what it is? There's kind of this weight or this heaviness. That's the only way I can really describe what he's talking about of weight, a glory of God. It's the presence of God. It's when God shows up. It's the display of his renown and who he is. One of the best authors who writes on the glory of God a lot, John Piper, even says, I can't begin to understand, understand it or define it. But he says this, and I think this is a good definition, the public display of the infinite beauty and worth of God. The glory of God is the public display of the infinite beauty and the worth of God. It is God on display, and it is what God cares about the most. It is what God desires more than anything, and it's what he desires even over yours and mine happiness. I think if you've grown up in church or if you're new to the culture of the church, it's kind of this thing that sometimes we hear like, you know, God's just here to make me happy. And if he doesn't make me happy, something's falling through. Either my prayers are broken or God's broken or one of the two because it isn't working. Here's the truth of scripture. God's primary concern is for his glory and then for your good. God's primary concern is that his name and reputation get out. And sometimes it's a hard question to wrestle with because oftentimes it comes at an expense. And we see that here in the story. To give you some proof of this, Exodus chapter 14, verse 17, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. First Chronicles 29, 11, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and all the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O God, and you are exalted as head above all. Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Proverbs 16, 31, gray hair is a crown of glory. How did that get in there? That's weird. <laughs> Proverbs 13, 16, 31, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Psalm 106, 7 to 8, glory is in there. Um, he talks about it all throughout Scripture, but it's probably biggest in Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no one other, nor my praise to carved idols. The Bible is very clear that the priorities of God are his name, his glory, his reputation, our goodness second. We cannot confuse the two. You will mess up so much of your life trying to live life basing God on the Santa Claus figure and saying, he's just there to make my life happy and give me cool toys. That is not who he is, and that is not who he is in this story. His glory is what he wants. His glory is what is on display. His glory is what is in play here in verse 4. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Not only his, but Jesus's as well. So he tells them, my name, my glory will come out of the story. Lazarus will be fine. And then we get this crazy and powerful verse in verses five and six. John eleven five and six. Now Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he ran to Lazarus and he put his hands on Lazarus and he healed his sickness. When he heard that he was ill, he dropped his disciples. He's like, I gotta go. I'm all heading over to Bethany. It's not that far away. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna heal him. No, he says he stayed two days longer in the place where he was, which wasn't that long of a journey to get to Bethany. It wouldn't have taken him two days. He stays in the place where he was. Don't, don't miss this. Highlight and circle in your discussion guides or in your Bibles if you're comfortable with that. Jesus loved is followed by the word so he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. 
Jesus loved them, so he stays and makes them go through the funeral. Jesus loves them, so he makes them walk through something they would never have wanted to walk on their own. He goes and and Lazarus dies. He stays and Lazarus passes away. And then he gets some weird section in 7 to 10 where he gives this mini sermon about being light and falling down in the darkness. And then in verse 11 and 16, he he tells his disciples kind of part of the plan. And so we jump into 11 and 16. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples, and this is, this is just, just so you know, don't give the disciples a hard time. I mean, he was, they've just been told the guy's taking a nap, okay? And so they, they've been told this, and the disciples said, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover, right? Not many of us have died from napping, right? I hope not, because that's my plan this afternoon, and I don't want to pass away from a nap, right? A lot of us... He's going to be fine. He will recover. He's he's all right. I don't think we need to take the journey over to wake the guy up from a nap. That's weird. Why would we do that? Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he had meant taking rest and sleep. Wouldn't we all? Like, I just, like, I love Jesus, but sometimes you got to give us a break. Like, I mean, the guy just said, falling asleep. Nobody's going to translate and not be like, you know what? I think he means eternally, and I think his salvation's at stake here, guys. Let's go. Not many had that discussion. He's asleep. Let him sleep. That's fine. Then Jesus told them plainly in verse 14, Lazarus has died. Okay, well, just say that, right? Like, that's a little bit bigger than taking a nap, and we got to go wake the guy up from taking his nap. Like, I mean, that's just inconvenient. Is Lazarus here? I heard he fell asleep. No, he's dead. Oh, okay. Sorry. My fault. That's, that's a little different. Lazarus has died. Verse 15, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. What? So that you may believe, but let us go. But Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. I love Thomas. This is context. This goes back to the stumbling and darkness. They were going to go to this place, and as they go to this place, their life was at stake because they wanted to take Jesus' life. And so when they traveled with Jesus, they were going on a death mission because they realized that if they go in the same town with Jesus as his entourage, they're going to pick up on the fact that he's their entourage, and they're going to want to kill them too. So Thomas is the you know the guy in the group that doesn't want to say what everybody else is thinking, but he does anyway. Let's all go die with Jesus. And so they all just go, and they know this is not going to end well. But somehow Lazarus is going to pull through, And somehow in all of this story, there's going to be the glory of God. So Jesus stays, Lazarus dies, his disciples think he's sleeping, and Thomas says, let's all go die in Judea. None of this makes sense so far. If you're tracking with me and you've been in church before, you may be like, no, this makes perfect sense. I know the story. For those who don't, this is just a weird beginning of a story. Because in the end, isn't it true? Death is horrible. Death of a sibling is horrible. Death is... Watching it happen through illness is even worse. To watch somebody have to walk this journey, like Mary and Martha would have had to walk this journey with Lazarus, and to know that Jesus said he's going to be fine, but then he doesn't show up, would have done a lot of damage to their faith, I'm sure. How on earth can this be God's plan? How on earth, even if he promised that this is going to be okay, that he's going to get glory out of this, how on earth does he get glory out of staying back two days with his homeboys in in this country, and then he doesn't come to Bethany where he should have been in the first place? We get some of it in 17 to 27, and he's talking to Martha here, beginning in verse 17. And when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. 
Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two, days, about two miles off. It's not going to take you two days to walk two miles. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Jesus was, I'm sorry, but Mary remained seated in the house. So Martha goes and he has this conversation with Jesus. And here's the first instance of Jesus getting glory. Because during this conversation in verse 25, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe that those who put their faith in me will never die? To which Martha thought, yes, I believe that. Eternally, heavenly speaking, when you get to heaven, yeah, we're going to live forever. I get that. She did not get the fact that here on this planet, you can resurrect somebody from the dead who's been dead for four days. That's crazy. Nobody believes that. But that's where he's getting to. So she says to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Here's his first getting glory out of this story. Lazarus is still in the tomb. He has not been resurrected. And yet in verse 27, we see the first glimpse of Jesus getting glory out of this story. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. First instance of getting glory. Second instance of getting glory. He turns from Martha and now he goes to Mary who is seated at her home. And there's a story that Mary is crying and bawling her eyes out at home and she can't serve herself to leave because the death of her brother is so much. And so her servants tell her, hey, Jesus is coming to town. And not only is he here, he wants you to come to him. Now let's just go humanity just for a second again. You've just lost your brother. The guy, the son of God has told you this is not going to end in death and yet it ends in death. You can probably just don't over sanctify Mary here. I'm going to guess she's pretty peeved off at Jesus, right? You said this was not going to happen and it did. You said it was not going to end in death and you spent two days on vacation with your 12 and you weren't here. And the pain and the remorse and the could-haves and the should-haves that come with any death were part of Mary in that moment. And then, and then, get this. Jesus says, have her come to me. To anyone else, that would have been probably a really arrogant statement, Right? It's like saying they're grieving, they're consoling. Hey, instead of me going to take something to their house to offer them something in their grief, have them drive to mine, would you? And have them come and meet me where I am. I really can't leave. And so if they could just come to me and have their grief met here, that would be great. But it's Jesus, and he's up to something. And so he asks her to come. Verse 31, when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Verse 32, here's where we get into the emotion. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, best verse to memorize because it's the shortest, Jesus wept. 
Jesus had emotion. Jesus loved Lazarus. He saw what was going on around him. And you can only imagine being the son of God, having to handle that much grief from Mary and Martha, but then to look at the crowds as well and see that they were missing the point completely. They were just following Mary because she was unhappy and they were just kind of following her because she was going to the tomb. They didn't really care. They were just kind of there because they wanted to be part of the thing. I don't really know many that were strongly attached to Mary and Martha the way Jesus was. And so he's troubled by this and the emotion in this. And you'd say, how on earth could this happen? And we've all been there where Martha, Martha has the same, or Mary has the same questions we do. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. God, you said you would never leave me. Then why did I lose my job? You said you would never leave me. Then why did my best friend betray me and leave me alone in the midst of the time that I needed them the most? You said you loved me. Then why did you take them from me? You said you loved me. Then why didn't you protect me from that thing that I went through? If you've not been there, you will be there. When you come to the place in your life where you disagree with how God gets his glory, you just will. And in every single instance, there's a lot of things I could tell you about why right? That's the question you get all the time. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? You could go into a list of 30 things, and I'll give you a couple. Unconfessed sin, increasing your usefulness, realize we live in a broken world, test and strengthen our faith, develop your character, drive us into his word, create opportunities to witness. It's all in how you handle it. I can give you a full list of whys. Here's what I know about you and I know about me. All those whys often don't trump the pain that you walk through. They just don't. They're helpful because it gives you a reason. But ultimately, when you disagree with how God gets his glory, we get an example of how we are to live it out through Mary here in this story. So here's a couple of things I want to suggest. When you go through those seasons, and we at Community Bible Church have walked through them, let me tell you, I, I was talking to the staff about this passage, and I said, I can go a couple of different ways because it's a large chunk of Scripture and a lot of us are just talking, we said, you know what? I think we just need to have a conversation about what do you do when you disagree with God's plan? Because I think there's a lot of us at Community Bible Church right now who disagree with God's plan to get glory. God, you're really going to get good out of this? I don't see how it's going to happen. God, you're really going to make good out of this? You've got a community grieving right next door to us, asking the same question. God, how are you going to get glory out of death? How are you going to do it? We've got to be willing to have conversations around that. And so let me, let me help you in how you have conversations in the midst of disagreeing with God's glory that we see from Mary here in this passage. First off, when you disagree with how God gets his glory, first thing, I want you to come. Jesus says to Mary, come to me. It's going to take effort to get you up and walking to me, but can I just tell you, there is something healing in doing something active in the midst of your grief to get you moving in the right direction. I think Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he told Mary to come to me. I want to get you out of the house. I want to get you away from those people. I want you to come. I want you to see your Savior face to face. I want you to come to me. And here's how she came. She came in humility. She came and she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. She came in the humility that she could muster. Yes, she was angry. Yes, this was painful. But she came in humility and said, because you are the son of God, I will trust you even in the midst of this. And she comes in humility and bows at his feet. 
I gave uh, somebody had come to me once and, and they were asking the question, is, is it wrong to be angry at God? Can I be ticked off at God because of what he's done in my world and, and what he's done in my life? And hearing her story, I would think, man, you have, I thought, man, you have every right to be angry at God. And then I started to dissect a little longer and I'm like, you know what? I don't know if we do. I think anger is a good response. I think we, we are okay with it. I think God's okay with it. But ultimately, God's saying to Mary and saying to us, I want you to come in humility. I want you to know that this brokenness is for a reason. And I want you to come in humility. And that anger that you have with it, bring it with you as well. Because she brought it in humility and she came in honesty. Lord, if you had not been here, my brother would not have died. You said he would not have died. And yet here we are. The funeral's over. He's buried. He's in the grave. Where were you? We had to go through a whole funeral without you. Are you kidding me? This is the guy you love, and you weren't even at the funeral? Who does that? How could you do that to us? And she comes and says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She comes in humility, but she also comes with honesty. And as believers in Jesus Christ, he's asking you to do the same. I want you to come in humbleness of saying, you are God and I know you are sovereign and in control, so I will honor you in that. But I also gotta be honest and this hurts. And this, this is not what I thought was going to happen. So I want you to come in humility. She comes in honesty. And then I would advise you to be angry at the right things. 11, 25, and 26 he talks about what this whole thing is about. In 25 and 26, he talks about the idea that he is the resurrection and the life. He is power over death and what he's going to show in the raising of Lazarus here. He wants you to be angry at the right thing. I want you to be angry at sin and death and what it does in this world. I had this conversation with a friend of mine who lost his wife to cancer, and it was brutal, and it was horrible, and it was ugly, and everything under the sun. And I said, how, how can you even deal with this. He says, you know what? God's teaching me how to be angry. I've never been an angry person. I've never been able to do it, but God's, and I said, how, what does that mean? He's teaching me to be angry at the fall and the nature of sin and the destruction that sin has. That yes, it impacts our temptations and our own little vices and things like that, but sin is ultimately death and death in this world. And he says, everything in this planet's broken. Everything's broken and tainted by sin, including death. And so when I have to bury a loved one because of the, the, the problem of sin and death in this world, it makes me angry at the right things. And I want you to be angry at sin and death and what this is causing. And lastly, five, know that Jesus is not disconnected. Tell yourself often, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. The son of God, the creator of the world, the one who, who made Lazarus, who knew every hair on Lazarus's head, wept because he saw what was coming here. So come, come in humility, come in honesty, be angry at the right thing. Know that Jesus is not disconnected. And sometimes, let me just, let me just put this out here. This is really easy to say from a screen and a microphone. This is very difficult Monday night when you're wrestling through all these things again. I get that. You're going to need to tell yourself this often. This isn't just a one-time, well, Joel said Jesus wept, so therefore I'm good. Okay, then just do you do. That's not how it works. That's not how this works. This is, you have to tell yourself every single day sometimes, Jesus is not disconnected. He is, he's, he's, he's not removed. He's not 
distant. He, he cares. He's part of this, in this, with me. And sometimes you have to tell yourself this hourly, if not daily. He is not disconnected. And then lastly, let me just give you a couple things here. Verse 36 and 37. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Number six, stay away from certain people during this season. You see the Jews, some of them were like, he loved and this is perfect. And then others were like, this is just like him. This guy opens the eyes of the blind, but this guy can't fix Lazarus. This is, this is just like him. Stay away from certain people in these seasons. Let me give you a few. Number one, stay away from fixers during seasons where you disagree with God's glory. The people, you know, they mean well, but they throw a lot of Bible verses at you. It'll just be great. You'll be fine. God's in control. Too blessed to be stressed, right? Because ultimately, if you're honest, don't we just want to punch them in the face? Maybe it's just me. Okay. I'll own it. I do. It means well. It's not helping. I don't want to be around fixers in the middle of grief. I don't, that's why in community groups, side note, that's why we don't allow fixing a lot to happen in small group because sometimes the best thing that can happen is to sit in silence and let the next thing happen, the next thing be said, the next thing be said. And some for some reason, step in and say, well, the Bible's very clear right here. You're like, I get it. I know it's clear. I don't care. Sorry. Don't be a fixer. Don't be a blamer in the midst of this either. You don't need to be around blamers. See, I told you so. I told you so. This was Job's issue. That he surrounded himself with blamers. Well, if you wouldn't have, if you could have, and if you didn't, and if God's this, then that's just, don't be around blamers. Numbers one, don't be around the I told you so's either. It's kind of the same thing. Don't be around the I told you so's. This is what you get for putting your faith in a God like that. I told you he'd leave you. I told you he'd leave. I told you. I told you he wouldn't do anything about it. I told you. This is why I don't believe in him. That's what these guys were doing. I told you, the guy can open blind eyes, but he can't help this guy. See how he is? Don't be around cynics. In the middle of your, whatever it is you're walking through, please don't be around cynics. The ones who are always, here's how you recognize a cynic in these situations. They're the ones that always back up everything you say as legitimate. You are absolutely right. You are absolutely right. They don't care. You're right. They don't, they don't understand. You're right. You have every right to be angry. You're right. You're, you've been hurt. Come here. I'm so sorry. Right? They mean well. Not always the most useful around that time. And lastly, I want you to know this, that Jesus had to do the same thing we do in the midst of this story. He had to trust his father like we have to trust Jesus. Because here's what was happening behind the scenes as Jesus does this. And this is going to be my last point this morning. As he was doing this, Jesus has something to say in verse 53 of the same chapter. Okay, so he raises Lazarus from the dead. We didn't get to that section, but it happens. He does. He raises him from the grave. He comes out, Lazarus! And he comes out, and he's got the bandage half on his face, and he's smelly, and everybody's like, hey, it's Lazarus! Yay! You know, the whole thing. Uh, but he does. He comes out, and it's miraculous. He raises Lazarus from the dead. But then verse 53, this is huge. I missed this a couple times. I've preached it before, but this is, this is huge. So from that day on, they, meaning the Sanhedrin, which we talked about last week, made plans to put him, Jesus, to death. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. His glory being on display would be the first domino to fall to set off a quick journey to his own death. 
Jesus had to have known. God, is this the time? Is this the time? Yep, this is the beginning of the end. Go. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. And it's at this point in history that the Sanhedrin says, enough's enough, Jesus has to die. And it's a fast-paced journey from Lazarus' raising to the cross. It's a very fast journey. And Jesus had to have known this was part of it. Jesus knew that being God's glory on display would even lead to his own death. And yet he did it anyway. As he's consoling these multitudes and these mobs around him, can you imagine with the knowledge in the back of your mind, this is leading to my own death. Yes, they're grieving. I'm going to be grieving because this is leading to my own death. Which leads me to the big truth in all of this, and this is where we land today. A big truth in the midst of all these hard times. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. In the midst of all this, yes, come in humility, yes, come in honesty, but here's the key. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all, highlight circle, ex, you know, exclamation points, comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's huge. Don't just isolate in your own little world. My life's so terrible. Yeah, it could be. Don't waste your grief and say, just leave it to here. I want it to go out. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. It's like Jesus was writing this with Lazarus. As I'm comforting Lazarus and his family, my suffering is to come. In the midst of whatever you're working through, and you're asking the question, can I trust God's glory over my preference? Here's my last suggestion. Be a comfort Listen to other people's story and not just your own in the midst of your grief. Be a fan of their story and get outside of yourself. That seems so counterintuitive. I can't. I don't have the energy. You don't understand. This is so hard on me. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. But here's what I know about the Bible. It is true. Here's what I know about Jesus. He gets it. And here's what he's telling us in 2 Corinthians. I want you to, in the midst of your grief, I want you to go listen to somebody else's story. I want you to go and hear what's going on. I want you to go be Jesus to that person in the midst of, not after the funeral, in the midst of, I want you to go and be that. Why? Because there's something powerful in this about the idea, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. If you're in the middle of that season this morning, let me just say, we are praying for you. We are with you. But here's what I also want to encourage you in. Go be there for someone else. Get out of your own bubble. Go listen to somebody else's story. Because Jesus is going to get his glory one way or the other. I want to be part of the stories as we get there. This morning as we close, let me just pray 
for those in the room who may be walking through some of this. And yeah, that makes sense, Joe, I hear it, but, but you don't know my story. You're right, I don't know your story. But here's what I do know. God's glory trumps all of it. And as painful and as hard as your story is, it is not wasted. It is not disconnected. And God wants to do something through your pain this morning. As we close, this song is one that I think um, we, we've loved to sing here. It's, it's, it's one that I think has become an anthem to some of us. And so I just want us to resound with this statement that in the midst of all this, even when I disagree with his plan, which we will often, you get your glory through it somehow, some way. And I will come in humility and honesty. And I will be that for someone else. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. God, I thank you that you are not, you are not disconnected. You are in and through it all. You are in and through the grief of child loss. You are in and through leaving family to go serve. You are in the midst of a community that is grieving and losing someone valuable to them. You are in the midst of it. So may we be in the midst of it. May we sit and listen. May we not be fixers or blamers or told you so's as a church body, but may we go and sit in the ashes and heap with them. Because that is what you've called us to do. It's in your powerful healing name we pray. Amen.